Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Well, uh, hello and welcome to Sydney's Writers, Sydney Writers' Festival 2023. My name is Simon Holmesacourt and I am the facilitator of this session and I am delighted uh, to welcome you to Climate Hope. I'd just like to acknowledge that today we are gathered on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I wish to acknowledge that the Gadigal are the traditional custodians of this land, and I pay my respect to their elders past and present, and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. We have much to learn from First Nations peoples, peoples who have been sustainably managing our continent for over 80,000 years. As I said, I'm Simon Holmesacourt, and it's a great honour to share this stage with three experts. Not only are they experts in their domains, but they are expert communicators. So we're in for a real treat. Between them, they cover pretty much the entire gamut of climate science, the engineering solutions, and the social and political systems changes that we need to address the biggest challenge of our time, how to preserve a tolerable climate for humanity and nature. Just a quick word about myself. Um, 35 years ago, I attended my first climate conference, the Greenhouse Forum at Melbourne University as a high school student. I'd love to say it changed my life, but actually we wagged the afternoon sessions and headed into town to get up to mischief. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't until 2007 that I found myself at the intersection of community, engineering, uh, climate science, communications, when I jumped in boots and all to the Hepburn Wind Project up in central Victoria. Um, small community built a two turbine wind farm that generates as much electricity annually as the community uses and built under a cooperative model. Um, what I learned from that project uh, um, led to a long association with Melbourne University, um, the Melbourne Energy Institute and later the Energy Transition Hub at the Climate and Energy College. Uh, and. Um, uh, more recently, I started a little crowdfunding campaign called Climate 200 that you might have heard of, had, um, was involved in the last federal election. We might get to that a bit later. Uh, and I'm a director of the newly formed Superpower Institute. Um, Ross Garno and Rod Sims have um, two, two great um, leaders in the economic discussion in Australia over decades, really, um, have started an, a new organisation uh, that is... Um, uh, wanting to make sure that all Australians understand that our lucky country has huge economic advantages in a decarbonising world. Um, we want to make sure that all policy makers in Australia know how to capture these benefits. It's a very hopeful vision and it's one backed by a lot of rigour. Um, but anyway, enough, enough of my yakking. Um, I'm, uh, you've come here to hear Joelle, Claire and Saul. Um, we're here to talk about hope and I'm going to introduce the panel one by one and ask them to talk a little bit about their book. So first, Joelle Gerges. Um, Dr. Joelle is an award-winning climate scientist and writer at the Australian National University. She served as a lead, order, uh, lead author for the United Nations IPCC Sixth Assessment Report and is the author of Sunburnt Country, The History and Future of Climate Change in Australia. Um, Joelle has also contributed chapters to Greta Thunberg's climate book, and uh, Not Too Late, a book edited by Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young-Lutuna-Tabua. Her latest book, Humanity's Moment, uh, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope, um, is what, we're, uh, what brings Joelle to this festival. Um, I'm going to start, Joelle, so you're a, you're a scientist, uh, I'll, I'll say it, um, you're a scientist at the top of your game. Scientists are supposed to be dispassionate. You work on the IPCC report. You're supposed to just give us the facts. But you've written a very emotional book. It's a book that's half despair, but half hope. Very importantly, half hope. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested, as a dispassionate scientist, how did you come about writing an emotional book, a quite an artistic book? And how do you square that with our vision of what a scientist is supposed to be? Okay, so a nice juicy question to start with. Right, so I think we all know that the numbers, the facts and the figures, they're simply just not enough. 
So, I mean, I can sit here and I can reel out all the different terrifying statistics about climate change, and I probably will do that as well, because that's actually my job. But obviously there's a real disconnect between what we understand and what we feel. So until we really have an emotional connection to the fact, for instance, that now we have We've lost 50% of the Great Barrier Reef since 2015. That's died off. So we're seeing large-scale ecosystem collapse on our watch. We've got the koala, um, our most iconic animal, is, is now listed as an endangered species in this country. Have a think about that. How do we actually feel about that? So I can go on and on and on about the state of the world. But until people start to feel either sad or angry or outraged or some kind of emotional response, nothing's gonna change. And so I guess I started off writing a pretty straight book about some of the facts and figures. I mean, obviously working at that UN level, I, I had access to the state-of-the-art scientific review, which only happens once every seven years. So it was all at my fingertips. And I thought, how am I, going to, how am I going to weave all of this information together? And then I realised that the best way forward was to be honest. And for me, to not be uh, honest about my emotional response felt really disingenuous. And if I can't be uh, honest about my response, then how can we expect other people to understand just how serious this moment is? And so for me, it became a real exploration of that line between what is my professional self, my personal self, and how do I reconcile those, those roles. But I also think that it's an outdated notion that scientists have to be dispassionate, because the truth is, is that I think you can be rational and logical, but still be professional. And so I think we can just maybe let go of that idea that, uh, because the stakes are so high. I mean, I was just talking to Saul before we got on the stage, and and this idea of urgency is still something that's very lost on the public. Whereas if people like me, it, it, it's really a very difficult conundrum. And it's, so it's a challenge. Do your, uh, are your colleagues, are your peers um, universally accepting of, of this? Or are there some that wish you would just stick to the IPCC reports? Well, look, to be honest, I have a, you know, imperfect uh, sample size. So people who tend to contact me are really supportive. But there are probably people out there who who might think that I should just stick to the science and not let people know about how I feel about it. But I think, obviously, we're at the point now where literally our house is on fire and we have to think about what we're going to do about it, but we have to act as it is an emergency. And I think that until the people on the front line of this, so people like me who have all of these numbers at our disposal so readily, if we're not moved by it, then how can we expect the average person to really get a sense of just how serious it is? Thanks, Joelle. Um, Claire. So Claire O'Rourke is an author and environmental advocate. She works as co-director of Sunrise Project's Australian Energy Transformation Program. Claire directs Climate Compass, a fantastic ongoing project to develop a deep understanding of Australians' attitudes, prospective behaviours and barriers to action on global warming. Claire has 20 years' experience in journalism, communications and advocacy in Australia and around the world. She's held a number of leading positions, including recently at Amnesty International and uh, National Director of Community-Led Renewable Energy Advocacy Organisation, Solar Citizens. Claire, your book is chock full of fascinating stories about uh, extraordinary, ordinary people doing great stuff around Australia. Um, there's lots of unsung heroes that I've met along my journey, folks like Lee Eubank, Anna Josephson, Nikki Eisen, Stephen Pfeiffer, Daniel Bleakley, they're not household names, but each of them are uh, working, um, doing, doing amazing stuff. Dozens and dozens of people you've given uh, a voice and an insight into their worlds. Tell us, why, why did you um, choose to highlight so many stories of these people around the country? And then more widely, what impact do you want this book to have on your readers? Hmm. So thank you. I'd like to acknowledge that we're on Gadigal country and I've come up today from Darawal country, just um, north of Wollongong, and I hope you've had a chance to connect with country today. Um, the book came about, again, through, similar to Joelle, a very personal experience of, you know, working in climate and energy advocacy for close to a decade, and then hitting my climate 
wall. Um, during the Black Summer fires, it almost sounds like a cliche to say that you freaked out during the Black Summer fires, but um, I'm sure that's possibly a shared experience for many of us here. Um, one of our daughters was in tears as um, we were packing our trailer because we'd gotten really spooked by the local Ostermere fire station crew saying, go and get ready, you know, and it just had this incredible amount of cognitive dissonance for me because I'm in a suburban area, it's leafy, but we just didn't think um, we were ever going to be right up against it in the way that it, it happened that summer. So that was bubbling away and I kind of, you know, had my climate moment and was faking it at work and everything was all passion and direction and, you know, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Um, but inside I had quite a lot of turmoil bubbling up that I was masking and I think that is something a lot of us experience because it's really hard to think about climate change, really hard to talk about it. And um, so I travelled along with that at the same time as we were working on Climate Compass, which exposed that more than 50% of Australia's population, millions and millions of people, are crushingly worried about climate change. And yet the survey and the research also exposed that people um, had a series of barriers in terms of the types of action they were prepared to take. So they feel like they need to be a climate scientist to be able to talk to anyone about climate change, people who are worried. They feel like they don't really know what's going to make the biggest impact, so they don't know what to choose. And so this book was designed to give people really practical examples of crusading, amazing people who are also just like all of us. Um, stories you can connect with and relate to, but also give you some ideas of where you might want to place your own effort. And, you know, we weave in a little bit of behavioural economics and systems thinking and a little bit of climate psychology as well to kind of place those stories within a context that helps us do some sense-making around this challenge and some of the solutions that we need yesterday. I heard Richard Dennis at the Bendigo Writers' Festival the other week, and he said one of the one of the most dastardly acts that politicians have done to us over the last few decades is is treat us like we're the only one who cares. Yes, you might care about climate, but no one else does. Everyone else is in a cost of living crisis, so the thing you care about is unimportant. I think one thing you've done here is you've shown that there are thousands of people who are doing meaningful actions and there are thousands of people who care. Do you think that's, that's important? Yeah, and I come from a very privileged vantage point working within the climate movement and the energy advocacy sectors and being able to see all of the wonderful work that's happening, but it can feel a bit dispersed or you're not exposed to it if you're not, you know, seeing that full kind of um, picture. And so there is an ecosystem of people who are working on this, and I know there's people in this room who will be doing that, and thank you for doing it. So, um, but I think it's also the kind of system that we're in is individualised to the point where we think that I need to solve this entire problem myself. And that's in the interests of fossil fuel companies and those who are trying to hold back change because they want to put all the problem onto you as an individual because they know that if collective action happens, they will not be able to stand in the way. And so showing that there are collectives, there are networks and there are thousands of people across the country who are doing things right now, things that you can connect with, um, I think is actually what is required at the moment that we're in. Well, it's great. Here's a, sort of a handbook of what you can do together. Together we can. And I think the together word is very important in that. Saul, Saul Griffith is an entrepreneur and an author. He spent two, two decades uh, in building Silicon Valley startups in clean energy and robotics and turned his attention to energy policy and climate change through rewiring America and now rewiring Australia. He spends his time trying to untangle the Gordian knot of regulations and fossil fuel lobbying's, lobbying in making better climate policy. Saul told me he calculates that in his mid-50s, the world will break, breach 1.5 degrees, and in his 70s or 80s, 2 degrees. That's made him concerned enough to take the gloves off and fight, and that's a word he uses a lot, fight, uh, take the fight to the world's politicians and regulatory agencies. So you spent most of your professional life in the US, um, where we're really privileged that um, Australia was a beneficiary of a reverse brain drain um, from, from COVID. Um, but in the US, and still, you contributed to the formation of the US Inflation Reduction Act, one of the most important and exciting country-level commitments to ta tackling climate change yet, uh, if not the most important. Uh, you're an inventor and an entrepreneur, um, we all know that a dirty secret in publishing is there's, you, you, you make bugger all money out of writing a book, um, yet you've written The Big Switch 
and uh, an essay in the quarterly essay, uh, The Wires That Bind. Um, why are you, you know, you'd, you'd make more money stocking shelves at Coles than, than, than these books. <laughs> so why do you bother writing a little, you know, a book on Little Old Australia? Um, what do you want us to get out of all your effort? Um, uh, Derek Thompson is a fabulous journalist for uh, the Atlantic, um, and I think he, he summed up really well. He reviewed the book I wrote in America called Electrify. So we've actually three books, all really in various details on the same topic of electrification and energy policy. And when he read that book, he said, this is the sneakiest piece of public policy writing I've ever read. <laughs> and he understood it. It was literally, this is a policy prescription for the incoming president of the US in 2020 and what you have to do if you want to hit a one and a half degree climate target, and um, a lot of the ideas that were in that book we managed to push into the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and so very proud of that, but you know, if, if I'm really honest with you, and this speaks to the urgency and why we're here, it's like I know in detail that, that what that book asked for and that the Inflation Reduction Act and the current set of committed climate policies in the US, which are under threat in the next election there, would still only be 25%-ish emission reductions by 2030, which was half of the 2018 target for a one and a half degree world, but the rest of the world emitted a whole bunch over the last year. So that's actually really now that, you know, it should be 75% by 2030 if you're really trying to hold yourself. So the biggest, bestest climate policy in human history is about a third sufficient. So why do I write these books? Um, the other reason is, you know, between Electrify and these two books, I've, I've learned that politicians don't really write policy. In fact, governments don't even really write policy. Their, their public sector bureaucrats really aren't given the permission to model the future that you want for one and a half degrees. They're sort of modeling within the constraints of their political parties and their political constituencies. And so the models underpinning you know, the EPA or the IEA, that's the Environmental Protection Agency or the Energy Information Agency in the US were insufficient for the target you want to hit. And this is also underappreciated. Some, I was having an argument with some Australian funder the other day about the IRA and how it was made. It's like arguing that, oh, surely the Australian government has got this. And I'm like, what you don't understand is that in the US, the four groups that did all the modeling and all the back end for the Inflation Reduction Act were independently funded and we're not coming from bureaucracies. So, and this is, this is shocking and, and terrible. So all of those groups had to be out there raising philanthropy to write sane energy policy. So a big part of government actually comes from outside of government. Yeah. So really, yeah, I'm not writing these books for money. I'm not really even writing them for you. I'm writing them to, <laughs> I'm glad yeah. you're reading them. <laughs> I would like to raise an army with these books because we also need to raise an army so yeah. that political pressure comes from below. So that was really the different... Electrify was written for Joe Biden. The Big Switch was written for you and then The Wires That Bind is really written for your communities. The latter two so that we, you know, I, where we are at on... We need to build the world's first and largest environmentalist movement that asks for things instead of demands for things to be shut down. And so I'm writing these books so that we can build a popular army that will maintain enough political pressure to actually give the permissions, politicians permission to do what is necessary. That's really exciting. I, I, I think a lot about how, um, for a long time, democracy in Australia has been something that happens, that, that other people do, or, or government is um, the class of people who get involved in it, um, the people who make policy, the people who um, uh, end up being in government, uh, treat us as if we're not part of it. You know, democracy is it's ours, right? It's supposed to be of us, for us, by us, but we've you're pretty weird if you join a political party these days. Um, you're pretty strange if you um, if you're a candidate in a political party and you rise through the top. It's a very rarefied set of people. We've seen um, uh, a, a lot of communities, and in, in, in what I do, a lot of communities re-engaging, thinking, "Hang on, this democracy is ours." Uh, and I'm I'm seeing a parallel here that you're uh, you're saying the the ideas. 
Uh, if, we, if we leave the ideas to government, we're going to get the same kind of ideas we've always had. Um, so yeah, you're out there it, getting make these this, ideas up. I can make this really concrete. Um, I saw a chart this week from the Environmental Protection Agency of the US, and on that chart, they had two trajectories, pre-IRA emissions reduction trajectory, post-IRA emissions reduction trajectory. This is literally the agency that's meant to model emission reduction trajectories. They could not model what was going to happen before the IRA because they didn't believe it was politically possible. So that is like absolutely illustrative of what is going on. We do not have a single proposed pathway from the collection of energy agencies in Australia that hits a one and a half or two degree target. We, we think the government has got this and they've gone and modeled it, but all of the ISPs, which are the integrated system plans, are insufficient for any of the climate outcomes that made you come to this talk yet they are what we're going to build policy towards. Actually, they're seen as the opening ambitious bid, and so the policy won't even hit those mediocre targets. So unless people come from outside and shine a light on that, and then come with new ideas and also do the fucking homework for the government, we're not gonna get what we need. Sorry. My mother's <laughs> in the front row and she hates an idea. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks She's so now weeping in the front row. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, so each, each of us on stage, uh, and I'm sure many in the audience, uh, have, um, have spent time in the despair frame um, and, and probably still do spend time in that, in, in that frame. But this is a session about, uh, about hope. Claire, I'm really interested in how, how do you balance despair and hope? Um, and uh, when you want us to think about hope, I want to, I want to hear your thoughts on what What's the hopeful future that you, that you want to see us fighting for? Well, the stories actually, actually gave me a lot of hope. Writing the book was a joy because it was, so, um, it was so heartening to hear the stories. And there was one story that still sticks with me, and her name is Susan Mungle, and she's in her mid-40s and lives in Kingaroy, which is the peanut capital of Australia. It's where... Um, Flo Bielke Peterson's um, pumpkin scones come from. And um, she's a speech pathologist, mother of four, started doing a master's in public health. Her son was waging a war on waste at his primary school. So thank you, Craig Rucastle and the ABC for that. Um, and she just, this awareness, when it dropped, she like fell into this pit of despair. And she had no engagement in climate before this. And she just wallowed around in it for a while. She's an intelligent woman. She did a lot of self-care and all the journal writing and things, but there was this one moment when she said, she wrote in her journal, I'm really cranky about this. I'm gonna do something about this. And she transformed. Within a few months, she's running Facebook groups. She's lobbying the local council. She has become um, a climate warrior and she said the only hippies she had ever encountered were the people in the shops with the crystals before that, you know. <laughs> so this kind of potential of transformation exists within each of us. It exists within our structures and our democracies. It exists within this society. So, and um, Claudia Rankin's incredible book called Citizen that came out about 10 years ago, she says that the state of emergency is also always a state of emergence. And so thinking about, you know, what is bubbling up and seeing those examples and making sure I am nourishing myself and people around me with those examples is what, you know, really brings me hope. And the people I work with across the climate movement and beyond are just incredibly inspiring, dedicated people across all sectors. So, yeah, that's, that's what makes me feel pretty hopeful. So you're... And scared as hell, I should say. <laughs> It, it, yeah, you, you, it's managing both at the same time, right? You don't transition necessarily from one cleanly to the other. It's maintaining both in parallel. Really hard for our brains to actually cope with holding those things at once. So you're, you're an engineer, I'm an engineer. Um, we get accused of being techno-optimists. Um, do you, um, you know, is there a dark side under that for you? Do you think sometimes we're all, you know, we're all fucked? Excuse me, uh, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Saul. Um, uh, <laughs> or is it all going to work out? I know, I, I know that your mother is the same age as mine, and I hope she also <laughs> criticises you. Um, thanks to all the mums out there. Um, I don't know. I, I, you do have to find hope in unusual places now. 
Um, I actually really loved it when Claire said, I hope you all connected with country today. I also came up from Darwell today, and I connected with country, and I went for a swim this morning, and the water was unbelievably perfect. And, you know, it's nearly June, no wetsuit required. It's actually scary warm. So I connected with country and also connected with the reality of climate change and the urgency in the same moment. And I really do worry that, you know, we've got more than 50% of humanity living in crowded cities and largely living in artificial environments. So I think the connection to it is really difficult. Um, in terms of hope, I think I have roughly the hope of the British people after Dunkirk. <laughs> so they just had their asses handed to them. They tail between their legs with a decimated Navy retreat to back to England. And then um, Churchill, I mean, I, you know, not an imperfect character, but extraordinary his speeches, if you think about the speeches that he gave during World War II, which approximately were, you're completely fucked, we'll fight them on the beaches with spoons. <laughs> and your hope has to be that we'll win anyway. So we're roughly there. So I find optimism that we actually did, we have turned things around with great urgency before, and I actually think Roosevelt and Churchill were the extraordinary examples on that, especially Roosevelt, um, sort of doing it twice in the US. Um, I can, as an engineer, say, have, have quite a lot of optimism and say, you know, for 95% of our emissions, all of the technology we need is on the table or very, very near at hand at this point. And so it really is just a political, social, economic challenge. I can even cherry pick data. So if you look at the rate of growth of wind and solar and electric vehicles and batteries, if we continue that rate of growth, so it's an exponential rate of growth, um, so if every one of those industries merely keeps increasing at about 17 to 20% per year, by 2037, the world will have made enough of all of the solutions to be completely decarbonized, all economies. So that's actually quite optimistic. It is within sight. Now, we may not hit the throttle, because then the year after that, you're like, well, we've, <laughs> we've way overbuilt capacity, so that, that may not be how you do it. But um, it is... It is possible. Um, I also find hope in the Inflation Reduction Act, as imperfect as it is. I find hope in the, some of the announcements in the Australian budget that just passed. It really did signify an about-face on climate policy. Is it enough? Not even remotely. But at least we're starting to point the ship in the right direction. So I still believe there is hope. The other hope you can find is... Um, really the failure of the IPCC, and it's not to criticise Joelle, because I think she and the science colleagues did a bang-up job and have done that for 30 years. The, there was a failure in process of the IPC, which the scientists' work typically was then handed to economists to interpret what the response should be, and the economists really only have very simple tools, unlike engineers, to solve this problem. So they argued, and we wasted 30 years arguing for carbon prices and carbon taxes and very abstract things. Um, but, you know, we now can, I think, I think we've taken the economists out of the room a little bit because it is an emergency and you call the engineers when you need to win the war. <laughs> and so <laughs> I find hope in the engineers. Uh, and I've been doing this wonderful community work where around the country we're sort of really figuring out what does it take to electrify communities and what does the detailed action look like at community level. And there's an amazing set of people in every community in Australia who are ready to do this. There's a similarly amazing community. It seems like there's a retired engineer in every one of those communities that's, <laughs> that's already done the numbers. Um, and there's a lot of... Uh, and I think this is good. I think there's a lot of concerned women who really are the backbone of most Australian communities who make sure that everything actually functions and runs. And there's a long history of that. And so like, I kind of can squint and see the the pieces. So, so the, the pieces, it's not that we need to invent new kinds of pieces, right? It's the, it's the social, uh, yeah, the, the machinery of society that you're working on now, not nuts and bolts and wires and Yeah, I think everyone chips. misunderstands me as the machines and the, it's up to the individual guy. Like, oh, which heat pump should I buy? 
when should I get the electric car I want? Is, is it going to be available next year or the year after? And I do talk about those things a lot, and those are all the individual actions, but um, we underappreciate that we had 150 years where everything from our building codes to our tax codes to all sorts of pieces of public regulation policy were written for a world of fossil fuels and answers that were fossil fuels. And we, we have to win every one, change every one of those for the future we need. So it really is structural change at detailed level that is, and then the political will that will get us there or not. Well, you, you, you mentioned that you see, you know, when you extrapolate the growth rates in, in charts, uh, you can see that there's light at the end of the tunnel. I, um, I, I often think about uh, the Bill, McKib Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org, has a quote that winning slowly is losing, which is a bit of a kick in the guts. Um, but then I think, are we, are we winning? Yes. Are we winning um, slowly? Yes, we are. But we are accelerating. And yeah, I see the same thing in the data. If you follow the acceleration up, um, the same kind of uh, drivers that got us into this mess, uh, we're on track to get out of this mess if we just keep pushing. That's going to require uh, it's going to require everyone. But I'm, I'm not sure you factored <laughs> in the time for me to throw this one at you. <laughs> um, I think that really works. And so where we now fail is not by the anyone who can afford to be here today being able to afford the solutions and the global supply chains being able to supply it. But this uncomfortable fact is that the free market can no longer hit the target. So if we, you know, there's 6% electric vehicle sales in Australia this last year, it was 20% in California. Um, we need 100% of electric vehicle sales. All vehicles have to be electric starting tomorrow. All, everything has to be the clean solution. So the free market can't get you to that level quickly enough. And even more difficult than that is only about half of Australians or half of Americans and smaller percentages of poorer countries have the credit or the income to make the right purchasing decisions. So I really think the, the, the jeopardy situation we're in is the rich people will be able to afford these for the next few years, but there'll be a cultural backlash because we're not solving climate change because the bottom 50% can't afford it. And then there will be resentment and that we could fail there. So I actually think the really interesting, difficult thing to think about is how do we help everyone afford that? And we need to be very, you know, we need new ideas and new creative economic ideas to make that happen. Yeah, I want to come get loop back to systemic change in in a bit, and I think that'll be a good good place to address that. But over to you, Joelle. Your your book, the first half is dark, um, uh, and I and I just want to for you to take us to. Um, there's a scene in the beginning of the book where is it is it middle of 2020? You're working uh, on the IPCC report. You would have. Um, taken you know, a, a, a horribly long flight to go and sit in a conference centre somewhere on the other side of the room, but that's all been shut down. So you're doing these meetings online. Australia always gets the, um, the, the, the bum deal there and you're up at 5.30 on this call. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you finish the call um, and then you get out your journal. Can you tell, tell us what you wrote? Yeah. It's extraordinary to realise that we are witnessing the great unravelling, the beginning of the end of things. I honestly never thought I'd live to see the start of what sometimes feels like the apocalypse. The Earth is struggling to maintain its equilibrium. It's possible that we are now seeing a cascade of tipping points lurching into action as the momentum of instability starts to take hold and things start to come apart. I honestly don't know what the future will bring. So this is Joelle three years ago. <laughs> Um, that is dark. That's very, very dark. But ultimately, this, ultimately, this is a book about hope and your journey um, from despair to hope. Um, I'm really keen to understand um, how have you progressed on that journey, and um, is it a is it a straight line between the two? Yeah, it's definitely not a straight line. And I guess I was writing this book in the aftermath of having just worked on the IPCC report, and as I said right at the start, really this 
what was happening in my professional life and my personal life was just starting to be a bit of a blur. Outside my window, things like the Black Summer bushfires were happening. We were seeing the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. There were so many things going on that it was really hard to, to really feel hopeful. And then I guess I started to think about human history. It led me into realising that climate change is really no longer a scientific issue. It's very much a cultural and social and political issue. So as Saul just said, we have the solutions that we need. So IPCC, one of the headline statements from the third volume, which deals with the solutions, basically says that we can reduce global emissions by 50% with existing technology. So things that already exist today, you could deploy it tomorrow, right? So why don't we do that? That comes back down to political will and whether or not we have the social licence for the continued exploitation of fossil fuels and the, the expansion of the fossil fuel industry, not only here in Australia, but globally. That's collectively the challenge that we face. And so for me, as I started to read really different literature, and it led me to, to writers like Rebecca Solnit, who have really documented, uh, you know, social movements of the past, and I realised that we we're actually smack bang in the middle of the greatest social movement um, of all time. And the fact is, is that humanity has risen to the challenge every single time, whether it's for civil rights, gender equality, and right now we have a sustainability crisis, and it is grim, and it's not going to be easy, but it is absolutely worth fighting for. And so when you stop and you think about it, and you realise that the people alive today are going to determine the future course of humanity, it really sharpens your thinking about how am I going to show up in this moment? And so for me, I looked around and I realised that actually my scientific colleagues are getting up at five in the morning or two in the morning and we're showing up. And outside the, our window as well, people were showing up in terms of the firefighters turning up and trying to protect our precious places. The COVID nurses were showing up, doing what they can. So in terms of saying, well, humanity is screwed and we're all just dark and self-interested and there's, there's no point. Well, I, you know, sometimes that can take hold. And then we had our federal election and that's why I was saying to you, Simon, last time I saw you, since then, you know, the Australian political landscape has changed so much. And as I was writing the last section of this book, I had to go back and revise these chapters around what happened in Australia. So social tipping points can happen. And the research basically says that you just need about 25% of the population to shift the social norm. So you don't need everyone to get it, just the critical mass. And once you do get that, the rest of the population goes with it. So, and when I realised that this is in fact the human story, then a light bulb went up for me and I realised that we can do this and it's going to be difficult but it's a really, really worthwhile thing to be doing. And I would like to say that, you know, I was on the right side of history, that I did what I could, and that I think a lot of people would like to be in that position where sometimes, well, very often, it's, it's a David and Goliath battle. And I guess we're, we're really locked in that right now. But I think it is a, it's a profound moment in our history. And it's make or break, but I believe that we can do it. And I'm so looking forward to reading your book, Claire, uh, in terms of just seeing what other people are doing, because I don't think we're good at telling better stories around what could be. Um, I, I read somewhere just the other day that most people can describe an apocalyptic future to you rather than a sustainable future or what they think a positive outlook looks like. And that's where I feel like I'm really happy to sit on this stage and really listen to what other people have to say, because as a scientific community, we, we only are one voice in this, con in, in this conversation, and it really takes, uh, you know, people from all different parts of society. And I guess it's also just realising that it isn't just a conversation about technical energy policy and that sort of thing. It is also just about people making a connection with this issue and realising just how urgent it is and really realising that what you do right now really makes a difference and will reverberate out for thousands of years. So I guess I fluctuate. There are, there are days when I feel that we can do it, other days are difficult, but I, I guess I, this book is really my journey through that. So it's, it's a hard one. Uh, sense of hope that I feel, but I, it's also that I have, I guess, an inherent belief that there's goodness in people.
Thanks, Joe. I want to talk about about um, individual action and you know, the 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 ability of the of, of the individual um, to shift the dial. Yeah, the chances are, some weeks from now, there'll be there'll, there'll be some event. Um, we've just passed Earth Day, but there'll be some event that will cause the Telegraph to write an article about what you can do. Um, uh, they'll crank out the same article they have done for the last 20 years, and it'll say, um, take shorter showers, uh, sort your plastics, um, recycle everything, you, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle, um, have meat-free Mondays, right? And if, um, uh, if, 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 if they're lucky, let, let's, let's, let's say they're wildly lucky and they convince 10% of people in, a, you know, let's say in the audience to reduce their emissions by 10%. That, I mean, that would actually be an amazing outcome to get people to reduce their emissions by 10% from just their lifestyle choices. It's, it's a lot harder than, than you'd imagine. Well, that's a 1% emissions reduction, and it's in the noise. 10% um, you know, of people reduce emissions by 10%, only 1%. Um, I'm fascinated that over, over, the last, uh, over the last decade, we've gone from 9% renewables in Australia to 36. Um, so it's over the last 12 years. And over the next 12 years, we're going to go, uh, we're predicted to go from, from that 36 to 90. Those, those steps have reduced everyone's emissions, uh, everyone in the country's emissions, by about 10% in the last decade and by about another 20% in the next decade and a half. Um, the first is individual action and um, it's one type of individual action. And the second is um, the result of systemic change. But it, that, uh, that, that's, that's an absolute cartoon of it because I think individual action has a, um, is much more than that and systemic change doesn't, doesn't happen in, in, a vac in a vacuum. So I'm interested in, in the long running debate between individual action and climate uh, and, and systemic change. I'll start, Claire, I'll start with, with you. We don't, we get taught these little, given these little things we can do, but we're never taught um, in school or uh, in, the, in the dialogue in these things about systemic change. Um, how do we learn about systemic change? We can read Dana Meadows foundational book, but I think um, thinking about systemic change, which- So what was the book called? I think it's called Thinking in Systems, if I remember right. rightly. Yep. Um, and Dana Meadows is no longer with us. But systems thinking is basically how do, you, how do you think about a system or an entity and how the different components of a system relate to each other? And for us, particularly as advocates and you know, political actors and lobbyists and scientists, how do we create the conditions for the, systems, the system to tip in the direction that we need it to? And for the work that we do in advocacy, yes, it's about working on removing the pillars of support for polluting industries, but it's also about building up the pillars of support for the industries and the solutions that we need. Um, when it comes to individual and systemic action, the individual action can create a pathway, you know, for people to take the next action that leads to helping influence that system. So most people are recycling. We're probably not recycling as much of our soft plastics at the moment, which is infuriating, but, you know, most people are recycling. Um, not a really big part of the carbon bomb that we're dealing with. Energy is huge. And so making choices about what's required right now for the moment that we're in actually does land within the energy sector and energy advocacy is fundamental to shifting policies, which are the really big levers that can help influence that system. So, you know, thinking about how you can play a role within that systemic change can sometimes be incredibly confusing because systems thinking is super meta. But um, I borrowed a bit from um, Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, who's the founder of the All You Can Save project, um, who has a great Venn diagram that, you know, how can you decide on what to do? You look at what's required, you look at what you're great at, and you also look at what you love doing. Because, you know, taking action on climate should actually be joyful and nourishing and not, you know, self-flagellating. Um, but the social science also points to the power of networks. And so I write in the book about um, some network analysis that was done by Damon Santola, who's an academic at Penn State University, who's also mentioned in your book. Um, and he talks about the concept of um, social change spreading more quickly if um, it's spread through networks. 
because, you know, if you've got one group of people who are in, a, also in one, network, one network who are also in another network, it creates really wide bridges. And the more wide bridges there are, the more quickly that behaviour change can happen. And so building into that Venn diagram, think about the networks that you have and the influence that you have and the resources you have. You know, you can bring a lot to this, a lot to this fight right now, whether it's the fight for solutions and everything we need with the, you know, beautiful co-benefits that we can all imagine and discuss with everybody to paint that image of what we need, or whether it's around fighting like hell to kind of shut down those polluting industries. Um, thinking about the networks that you can tap and the catalysts that you can become, because you, Simon, and you, Joel, and Saul, you're all catalysts. So a catalyst, if I understand rightly, in chemistry is something that encourages a reaction between two substances without harming itself. And so I think it's a wonderful metaphor to think <laughs> about what are we catalyzing through our networks, what are we creating, but also how are we helping preserve ourselves and keep ourselves well and nourished and sustained and connected to this country and connected to the first people who actually know how to look after it. So I, I just think there's so many lessons in how we can think about systems and how we interact with them, but bring it right down to the practical way that we can take part in it. Thanks, Claire. So, so um, question for you. Will the heavy lifting be done by individuals or by government? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I participate in something that is, there's a technical definition of systems thinking and I do some of that. So like, how does all the energy flow through an economy or the world economy, I'm currently working on how do all of the materials flow through the world economy, so everything that humans move. And one extraordinary statement you can make is that carbon dioxide is the thing that humans move more than anything else. In fact, if you put carbon dioxide that we move on one side of a set of balances, everything else we move is on the other side and carbon dioxide still tilt, tilts it. Like, it's just so many tonnes of carbon dioxide compared to everything else. And this includes our sand and our food and all, and all the metals and everything of modern society versus carbon dioxide. That's how um, prolific it is. Um, but I think, you know, maybe to, to your piece... Uplifting, uplifting. <laughs> I'm going to bring it home to uplifting via a small historic detour. Um, so Earth Day happened in 1970. It was the largest ever movement before or after, really, for the environment. Um, and it was, you know, on the back of Silent Spring, uh, Rachel Carson's incredible book, which was really sort of in the environmentalist reading canon, if there is such a thing. Um, but not a huge amount changed after 1970. Then America entered into its first energy crisis, the 1973 Arab oil embargo, which was a huge crisis for the US, they were missing 15% of their energy. It happened under Richard Nixon. There was no EPA, there was no Department of Energy. He literally had to call on a loose committee of um, atomic scientists to say, well, what's wrong here? How do we fix this? They very quickly did all of the analysis and like, well, we're short 15% of energy supply. By the way, we should probably have a Department of Energy, so create one, so he did. We should have the EPA, so Nixon created these things. You know, Carter bought it home, but Nixon kicked it off. This was before American politics was quite as tragically divided as it is now. But because it was a supply side crisis, they were missing 15% of their energy supply the answer that the boffins came back with is obvious. Well, let's make all the cars 15% more efficient. So we'll invent a fuel economy standard. So they wrote that into policy that, that actually drove the world's cars to become more efficient. And, if, and the other 15% of our oil is being burned to heat homes and businesses. So let's make our appliances more efficient. So they started the Energy Star appliance stuff. So we translated the solution to that energy policy into a into a policy of you know reduce reuse recycle be more efficient and we hammered the the environmentalist movement was like ah oh, that can be our cause but it rhymes with you know if we just sacrifice a little bit more we'll be slightly less fucked <laughs> as like a, you know not exactly a yeah <laughs> fantastic movement um 
and I think that we've suffered from this reduce, reuse, recycle, little bit less narrative for 50 years. Um, and it isn't a compelling enough vision. It has been insufficient to be the environmentalist movement we needed. Um, it wasn't attractive. It's easily ridiculed. I think the interesting thing now is like we, with electrification as the answer, we've got some pretty interesting answers coming up for like how we do dairy without cows and all these other things. Like it is pretty exciting technologically um, that we can now do all of these things. Uh, the, you know, if, you, if we electrify the world, you'll have all the same size homes, all the same size cars. We can separately question whether that's a good idea, but you could have all the things that we have right now, all of the luxuries, everyone in the world, and we, you'd only need about 40% of the energy we need today. That's how extraordinarily efficient it was. So the unfortunate thing of this efficiency narrative was it blinded us to the fact that actually the real efficiency was electrification and transformation of the system. This sort of brings me to really thinking about infrastructure and systemic change. So the reduce, reuse, recycle is a narrative where, you know, if you just use a keep cup and you recycle the soft plastics, it's all going to be okay, as opposed to, Joel has done a great job. You're all really anxious. You know it's an emergency. I now need you to really rush and hurry up and panic and make six good decisions in the next 20 years that determine all of your emissions. Right? So what car are you driving? Where are you getting your electricity from? What are you cooking with? What is heating your water? What is heating your home? Do you have solar on your roof? I had to get to six. <laughs> um, but like... I think of those things as the infrastructure of your life. So we've been trying to fight all of these environmentalist problems with incapacitating 1,000 consumer decisions in the supermarket. The child is crying, your husband's coming home late, or whatever it is, um, and you've, you've got to choose the least worst of the 97 cereals. Which one killed the fewest dolphins? <laughs> as opposed to actually, no, we need you to make six indecisions about the infrastructure of your life. If you make those correctly, you'll be zero emissions for everything apart from your eating and your banking, right? So I now think we're struggling with, and we've seen this in our own community, Claire and I live near each other, we've now got the whole community really excited about electrification, like, let's go do it, let's go do it. Oh, it's gonna take 20 years and it's six decisions each. <laughs> so it's like, hurry up, how do you make these decisions? But then also, I use that word infrastructure very carefully because we need this penny to drop for government. Um, the largest battery in the future of Australia will be our 20 million vehicles. The largest generator of energy in Australia in, in the future of Australia will be our 11 million rooftops. Unless we understand your individual decisions as infrastructure, we will continue to do what we just did in the fucking budget. We'll give $2 million to the hydrogen industry. To, you know, that may or may not make some emission reductions in 10 years. So we gave them effective priority and better access to financing than we gave to your household to affect the decisions of infrastructure in your life. We give preferential handouts to AGL and these companies that are very serious. and They've got men in grey suits and they build infrastructure. Let's give them the best access to financing. What about the single mother in Cabramatta who you could get emissions reductions with an electric vehicle tomorrow and save her $3,000 a year? Right, we need to fundamentally change and can how I, we can get Can I just add to that that people who are in those communities are organising right now, and I write in the book about Voices for Power, which is a climate and energy justice um, organisation that is organising communities out in Western Sydney where it was 48.9 degrees on the 4th of January 2020. It was the hottest place on earth on that day. And I'm going to call out Ratana Chia from the Multicultural Leadership Initiative who is working on climate and energy leadership in multicultural communities. The people are rising. People are fighting. If I, Thank I, you. I, sorry, if I, have, I want to finish on hope because I, I want to. I got you all there. I, I, I do want to leave time for two questions, okay. two or three questions. So, here's hope. You're an average Australian in the audience right now, whether you like it or not. Because you're average, you emit 15 tons of carbon dioxide per year, and you're personally responsible for three or four tons of fly ash and other byproducts of combustion, your fossil fuel life that end up in waterways. Got the hope yet? <laughs> <laughs> We're waiting. <laughs> <laughs> if I electrify everything in your life and I provide half of that power with wind power, half of that with solar power, half of that with batteries, and I know I store half of the energy in batteries, 
I'll need around about 50 kilograms of solar cells for you every year, about 50 kilograms of wind turbines, about 50 kilograms of batteries, your whole life. So you go from 21 tonnes of waste products to about 150 kilograms. But it's better than that because these things are all made out of metals and glasses, which are all extremely recyclable. In fact, copper is so valuable that the junkies recycle it for you. Um, yes, yeah, sorry if you had to get the darkness of that joke, but the hope is this. Um, we can probably get very close to 100% recycling of all of those things. We also know that we're about to go through the demographic transition so that by the end of this century, humanity will probably be decreasing in numbers. So we could be post, a post-mining civilization that is a truly circular economy where we're using last year's solar cells to make next year's solar cells by the end of this century and think about that enormous lifting of the weight on Earth, on the, the systems of the Earth. So like we are, we are so close. If we can just get to there, like we really could be living the, the, yep. the humanity dream. It's crazy. That's, um, Buckminster Fuller had a vision a lot like that about 80 years ago uh, of, of, of a circular economy um, with those same sort of messages that we could, we could with, with good recycling and more materials efficiency, we can dramatically reduce, if not eliminate, most forms of mining. Can I say while, something? Yeah, uh, while they come up, I was going to ask yeah, a question. Yeah, because I've, I've, got, I've got something to say about yeah, all this. <laughs> <laughs> As you can hear, the solutions are here. It is just insane that we just don't roll it out. So that's where you guys come in. It's the social movement. It's the social movement. And so it is really exercising your power as a citizen, as a consumer, to get behind the politicians who really want to see this sort of thing happen. Because as we've got people like Saul, we've got people like Claire, we've got people like me who can advise governments and, and that sort of thing to be able to do, to, to be able to do it. And so really the missing link for me is the social movement. And that is the entire motivation for the reason why I wrote my book. And go to climateactionstartshere.com.au if you want to know where to start. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Question. Hello. Hi. We're not speaking up enough as scientists and advocates and communicators for the natural world, which is just like in free fall at the moment. How can we work those things into the conversation? That's a great question. I'll, I'll take you, it. You take that, John. Yeah, yeah, so for me, the ecological and climate crisis, it's one and the same. You really can't distinguish them. So it, it's absolutely true that we need to restore ecosystems and regenerate you know, our, our degraded landscapes and soils, and that's possible to do it. And we get the winds from the carbon side, but you also get the winds from the habitat and the, and the revitalisation of ecosystems, which I think is, is really, really exciting. So I think that it also comes back down to... Sh putting all the technology aside for a moment, it's a shift in our mentality around what we value. And so First Nations people get it, the caring for country, the connection to country. So many of us are urban dwellers and we have lost connection with the natural world. And so I think we're so far removed from that. And so that again comes back down to our shared or our individual values around, are we okay with say the koala becoming extinct or the Great Barrier Reef collapsing? And so it, it really is, it's, it's, it's not a revolutionary idea in terms of healing our relationship with the planet. It's necessary. And I think it just comes about from having these types of conversations, which basically says enough is enough. We don't want to continue to exploit fossil fuels to the bitter end and just leave such a, a horrible legacy for others to mop up. It, it's just, it's unconscionable. And we can do better. The Thank book you. that Rachel Carson wrote after um, Silent Spring... She actually wrote for her four-year-old nephew, and it's about walking along the edge of the water in Maine and appreciating the world and connecting with country, really. It's a story about... Because she and, you know, the early environmentalist movement really struggled with the fact that we are forgetting the connection. Very, the you know, very, yeah. very quick question, please. My climate hope is with the youth, the people that are the most important for what's happening in our world today, which is our youth. Well, there's so, certainly, certainly leaders in this space. Does anyone want a 30-second comment on that before I... Yeah, I have a whole chapter on intergenerational... Um, <laughs> on intergenerational concepts and really thinking about the fact that we don't want to dump 
the young people with an, an enormous problem, which effectively is the culmination of exploiting the natural world from day dot. So I, I really think that we do need to pay attention to young people's mental health, starting to tell better stories, ones that are more regenerative, not degenerative. The, the whole thing about the apocalypse being a done deal is just, is just not true. And so I guess it's about thinking about how we engage people in a much more positive vision for the future. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming along today. That's all we have time for. You've, you've heard from, from my three panellists up here, people who eat, breathe, sleep, <laughs> dream, uh, climate concern and climate solutions. Uh, I think it's fair to say that all of us on stage are optimists, but we know that we are not in search of more science to solve these problems, not in search of more engineering. What we're in search of is, is more people with hope and with active hope, uh, getting out there and joining the thousands, uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Australians who found their super, superpower uh, in various, um, uh, various movements and who are helping Australia get on the right track to do what, to do what we've got to do uh, for the future of um, not only our species, but all, all species that live on it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.